Translations are good in that they help us read something we wouldn't otherwise have access to, but unfortunately, they can sometimes be misleading. Previously, we talked about how translators can impose their will on the text by what words they choose to use. And as we've seen, this sometimes obscures connections the original text was trying to make. However, there's another problem with translations that we haven't dealt with yet. What happens when the translator chooses the right word, but our understanding of the word's concept is different than the original author's? Today, James hits hard on the rich, but do we understand being rich in the same way they did in the first century? The answer is no. And what about being poor? What does this mean? The bottom line? Understanding the biblical text is more than just learning languages. It's also diving into the culture of the ancient world. You're listening to The Way with Father Dustin Lyon, a podcast of the Ephesus School Network. the way. I'm your host, uh, Father Dustin Lyon. As we continue our look at James, we are about to begin chapter 5, which is the last chapter of James. So we're drawing close to the end, although I think it'll take a few podcasts yet before we finish James completely. I think what we'll do is similar to what we've been doing the last couple weeks. I'll read the entire passage I want to cover today, and then we'll go back and we'll look at it as a whole, and then we'll look at some specific details. And hopefully that agenda, or syllabus, depending if you're in the business world or or the academic world, will help you kind of make sense of the passage, and it'll provide some meaning about what James is saying. So without further ado, here's chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 6. And again, this is the New Revised Standard Version translation. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted, and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and their rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts." You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. Ouch. So, on the surface, it makes it sound like there's no hope for anyone who has money, a rich person, as we tend to think about it. It sounds very condemning and very hard to digest. And it probably is for most Americans. How are we actually to understand these? Is this a straight-out condemnation of people with money? Does it literally mean rich people can't enter the kingdom of heaven? Let's first define some of our terms. What do we mean by rich and poor? And let me read to you some of the work by Bruce Molina. For those who don't know, he is a scholar who worked specifically on the culture of the first century. And he's written several books, including a commentary series called The Social Science Commentary. The one I'm reading from is on the Synoptic Gospels. 
but he also covered the letters of Paul, the book of Acts, and he's even got a book just on the cultural aspects. And his commentary is unique. Instead of trying to analyze the text from a literary point of view, or from a theological point of view, he's looking at it from a cultural point of view. And in many ways, I think this is actually more helpful, because once we understand the culture, the meaning of the text comes through. And of course, you can't do theology until you understand what the text is actually saying. This is why we get so many different points of views in our world today. Churches breaking off and forming all sorts of different denominations or non-denominational churches. And each of these are based on what someone thinks, rather than actual research and evidence of what's happening in the text, based on the first century historical understanding. He's got an entire section in his commentary series called Rich, Poor, and Limited Good. And what you have to understand is poor had a very specific meaning that's different than our meaning of poor. Same thing for rich. In the first century, it had a very different meaning than the one we assigned to it. And the reason they had different meanings than we do today is because of their view of goods in society. Goods can be anything from money to land to anything you can possess. Whereas we understand goods as unlimited. For example, we don't think there's only so much money in the world. We think we can produce money in an infinite sort of way. This is what the stock market is built on. This is why there's no longer a gold standard, that we can accumulate money indefinitely. But in the first century, that's not the case. They felt that there was a limited amount of goods, and who owned those and who didn't, and who acquired those and who lost those, go plays into their understanding of what it means to be poor and rich. So let me read to you directly what Bruce Molina wrote, and I'm going to kind of jump around and just kind of give you the highlights, but I think you'll have a clearer understanding of what rich and poor means, and from that, it'll help us understand our passage in James. So here's what it means to be poor. Quote, the poor are persons unable to maintain their inherited honor standing in society due to misfortune or injustice of others. Because of this, they are socially vulnerable, that is, religiously, economically, politically, and domestically. People who are maimed, lame, blind, and the like are poor regardless of how much land they might own. Thus, being poor is a social reality that can in turn have economic overtones or consequences, though the latter usually enter discussion only for the wealthy. Essential to the understanding of poverty is the notion of limited good. All goods existed in finite, limited supply and were already distributed, we can assume by God, right? This included not only material goods, but also honor, friendship, love, power, security, and status as well. Literally everything in life. Because the pie could not grow larger, a larger piece for anyone automatically meant a smaller piece for somebody else. This is why it's called limited good. An honorable man would thus be interested only in what is rightfully his and would have no desire to gain anything more, that is, to take what is another's. Now, notice how insistent he is on the idea of honor. This is a very big idea, honor and shame, in the first century. Acquisition was by its very nature, 
understood as stealing. The ancient Mediterranean attitude was that every rich person is either unjust or the heir of an unjust person. Profit-making and the acquisition of wealth were automatically assumed to be the result of extortion or fraud. The notion of an honest rich man was a first-century oxymoron. To be labeled rich was therefore a social and moral statement as much as an economic one. It meant the power or capacity to take from someone weaker what was rightfully not yours. Being rich was synonymous with being greedy. By the same token, being poor was unable to defend what was yours. It meant falling below the status at which one was born. It was to be defenseless without recourse. The terms rich and poor, therefore, are better translated greedy and socially unfortunate. Fundamentally, the words described a social condition relative to one's neighbors. The poor are those who cannot be given a grant of honor, hence socially weak, while the rich are the greedy, the shamelessly strong. Unquote. So that's where my quote for Bruce Molina ends. So you can see that in the ancient world, they believed essentially that God had divvied up the world's goods, which included everything in life, as you heard, in a way where everyone benefited from God's blessings. And that's essentially how they would have thought about it, that the goods in the world, land, money, wealth, love, all these sorts of things, would have been a blessing from God given out to everyone. And this is why the year of Jubilee was so important in the Old Testament. So as the Hebrews or the Israelites fled Egypt and they settled in the Holy Land, God divvied up the land equally or in a fair way among all the tribes. And of course, the Levites didn't get a portion of land because they were responsible for the temple, hence the tithe. You were free to sell and buy land, but in the year of Jubilee, everything reset back to the way God had proportioned it, because this is what was fair and just. It gave everyone an equal opportunity. Now, of course, archaeologists and historians believe that the year of Jubilee and this reset button, if you will, was in scripture, but it was never actually practiced in reality, historically. But it gives you an idea of what God's justice or God's blessings in the world looks like. And of course, as Christians, in the resurrection, new creation, this is the sort of justice we pray for. This is the sort of justice we look forward to. This is our hope as Christians. Now, the problem, of course, for those in the ancient world, was if God had given everyone a fair blessing and an equal way to make a living, when some people started gathering up more pieces of the pie, it left others without enough to live on. And this becomes the problem. And this is what's considered rich in the ancient world. And of course, this is also why he says rich means greedy or shamefully strong, as he put it. They're able to gather up what wasn't theirs to boost themselves up. And of course, the poor also can have a negative connotation because it also means that you are unable to defend the honor that was given to you. Of course, this honor is given to you by God. It's a sort of blessing. And in honor-shame society, this is very important. And there are certain things that could happen to you in life 
that would mean you were unable to defend your honor. And of course, in a world that's patriarchal, the loss of a husband, for example, would mean that the widow couldn't defend the honor of a family, which is why widows and orphans are considered poor in Scripture. Now, you may be wondering, how did this play out precisely within the first century, within Jesus's world or the world of James? Well, for this, I want to turn to the work of Richard Horsley, and he wrote a book called Jesus and Empire. And this is another great, great, great book. His thesis is essentially how Jesus confronted the powers of his day and the way that he confronts those powers. And in it, he talks a little bit about the economic reality of the first century. And here's what he says in his book, Jesus and Empire. Jerusalemites, so those who have been the people who lived in and around Jerusalem and Judea, the territory around Jerusalem, Jerusalemites would have been economically dependent on the temple apparatus, directly or indirectly. Through much of Herod's reign and for nearly three generations after, for example, thousands of people were employed in the massive reconstruction of the temple complex. Like the people of any pre-industrial capital city, ancient Jerusalemites would have had a vested interest in and loyalty to the ruling institutions, if not the incumbent rulers. In the Roman imperial order, however, these rulers may have been compromised in the eyes of many Jerusalemites, who might well have opted to defend their traditions against the very high priestly offices of the temple state. So if you lived in or around Jerusalem, you probably made your living off the temple, is what he's saying. And in many different ways. Uh, you could have been a construction worker because the temple under Herod, and then for the next couple of generations, went through this huge renovation completed by Herod. And then eventually the temple would be destroyed in 70 AD, as we know. But until then, you would have all these construction workers working on this renovation project, which would have produced a lot of income for these folks. But in addition, there were three pilgrim feasts in the first century. And in these pilgrim feasts, all first century Judeans or Jews were required to go to the temple to celebrate. And so you see Jesus doing this for a few different occasions in scripture where he goes, him and his family go to Jerusalem and Passover, for example, would have been one of these feasts. You would go to the temple in Jerusalem, make your sacrifice and celebrate the feast. But if you're going to do that, you have to realize you need a hospitality system to greet all these people coming from all around the world to Jerusalem. You know, hotels and food and these sorts of things. So people who lived in and around Jerusalem would be benefiting from all this tourism, if you want to think of it this way. And so they too, in a way, were making their profit off of the temple system. That's Jerusalem and Judea. There are, of course, other regions who would have a different economic reality. And one of them would be the Galileans. So you have Jerusalem and Judea. If you go directly north, you have Samaria. And then above that is Galilee. And this is where Nazareth is, for example. This is where Capernaum is. This is where Jesus did a lot of his ministry and where he would have grown up. So here's what Horsley says in Jesus and Empire about the Galileans. Judean and Galilean peasants, on the other hand, lived in semi-independent village communities. As the productive economic base of the Jerusalem temple and priesthood, and of the Herodian capital cities of Sepphoris and Tiberias in Galilee, the peasants' role was to render up produce in tithes, taxes, and tribute for the ruler's support. So long as tithes and taxes were forthcoming, 
the Jerusalem priestly rulers and the Herodian rulers in Galilee interfered very little in the local self-governance of these village communities. Peasant villagers therefore enjoyed a degree of independent community life as well as an interest in minimizing the amount of their produce taken in taxes. Further, Judean and Galilean peasants were cultivating their own popular version of Israelite tradition that, far more than the version accepted at Jerusalem, emphasized stories of liberation from oppressive rule, popular leaders such as Elijah, and the covenantal ideals of justice. And that's what Richard Horsley says there. So in other words, we have this huge contrast between those who make their living off the temple, who often become very rich, and then the peasants and those in the village communities, simple farmers and craftsmen, those sorts of folks. And there's a tension between them. And in some ways, the peasants and those who live in Galilee, for example, would have seen those in Jerusalem as rich. In other words, they would be taking advantage of the poor people. They would be living off the backs of those who are not economically wealthy. And this becomes a problem. We see this today in our society. If you look at economic trends, you see more and more wealth being concentrated in the upper 1%. They control a lot more. This also translates into political power, and political power means that they can pass laws that benefit them versus the general population. And so we see this sort of clash between classes uh, happening in our own contemporary world. And this was very prevalent in the first century. And a lot of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about justice is this idea of the greedy or the rich living off the backs of the poor. And this is unfair and unjust. And this is why James says, Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. He's condemning those who live off the backs of others, who take advantage of them. Now that we've gotten some general definitions and we have a better understanding of first century reality, let's go back and look at this passage in a little more detail. And this time, I want to look at how it's playing or using other passages in Scripture. One of my main theses for Scripture study is that Scripture is self-referential. In other words, it references itself, and this is our key to understanding it. And after we finish with James, I'm thinking about doing some interesting stuff about how Scripture was produced and how it uses other parts of Scripture in its production. But we'll get to that when we finish James. But for now, there are three specific topics that pop up in today's passage that I saw correlations in other parts of Scripture. So that is storing up treasure— Sowing and reaping, a harvest, and then finally, murder. So, here James condemns the rich who store up treasures. And that pops up a lot. The first reference I have is Matthew 6. This is starting with verse 19. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust consume, and where the thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust consumes, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Of course, this comes at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is talking about the importance of being righteous. And he talks about prayer and almsgiving and fasting. And of course, that treasure is to seek after God's law, God's Torah, which is love of God and love of neighbor. 
And of course, this also translates to images of justice when you're caring for the neighbor, those who are not economically able to take care of themselves or defend their honor, as we heard earlier. And so Jesus is talking about following what God says and God's laws and God's righteousness rather than that of man. And of course, this is echoed by Luke in chapter 12. He tells about the man who has an abundance of crops, and instead of sharing them with his neighbor, he builds up barns and stores them there. And then he says in chapter 12, verse 20, But God said to that farmer, You fool, this very night your life is being demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. So you can see he is condemning those sorts of folks. And finally, we also see the same sort of thinking in St. Paul. This is chapter 2, starting with verse 5. But by your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. For he will repay according to each one's deeds. To those who, by patiently doing good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. While those who are self-seeking and who obey not the truth but wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. So we see when James condemns the rich or the greedy, he is using or confirming what is said in Matthew, Luke, and St. Paul. And of course, there's other passages you could draw to. And also in the Old Testament, I haven't even penetrated the depths of that for sake of time. The next thing we want to talk about is the idea of sowing and reaping. And here James says, Listen, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. And this is probably a reference to what Horsley was talking about, that the farmers and the poor had to pay taxes and tithes in order to support the political and temple complex. And this isn't right. This isn't fair. But it also makes me think of John. This is chapter 4, starting in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. Do you not say, Four months more, then comes the harvest? But I tell you, look around you and see how the fields are ripe for harvesting. The reaper is already receiving wages and is gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. In other words, Jesus is trying to reorient what the rich are reaping. They want the crops in order to turn it into money, in order to live luxurious lives and to build nice houses. And Jesus is saying, that's not the harvest you need to be concerned with. You should be concerned with the harvest that is the gospel, the seed of the gospel. And Matthew echoes something similar. And here how we see how God deals with the laborers. Rather than extorting them, like we see in the first century, God has a different idea about how laborers should be dealt with. So this is Matthew starting in chapter 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and he said to them, You also go into the vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon, and about three o'clock he did the same, and about five o'clock he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, 
Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and then going to the first. Then those hired about five o'clock came. Each of them received the usual daily wage. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received the usual daily wage. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. So this is an image of the kingdom, how God deals with things. You can see here the image of fairness, and this goes back to our understanding what it means to be rich and poor and limited goods. Each one receives what is theirs, no more, no less, because this is their view of the world, and God's justice is fair. Finally, at the end of today's passage, James says, you have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. In other words, by extorting them, James equates this with murder. And I've got a few passages that this brings to mind. First one is Matthew twenty-three thirty-one. Thus you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. And of course, the idea of murdering the prophets goes back to the Old Testament. At the time of Elijah, and you can find this in 1 Kings 18.31, and then again in 19.14, we have an image of Jezebel murdering the prophets, literally. And of course, the murdering of the righteous one, we can think of Isaiah's suffering servant, which is an image of Christ, or the crucifixion of Christ, or even the stoning of the first martyr, Stephen. These are images, literally, of people who think they are righteous, whether they are kings or temple officials or religious officials, literally murdering righteous people. And I think James is expanding it to a much greater understanding that those who simply just want to live and follow God's commands are being extorted um, by political and temple authorities of their days. I hope this has been useful. I hope you come away with a better understanding of what James is talking about when he's condemning the rich here. And you can understand the first century situation and I hope it helps you understand or is able to translate it into our situation today and what it means to be just and righteous and how we should be advocating for the least of these within our own society. Because according to James and God, this is what is right. This is what is justice. So I'll see you next week. Until then, God bless. <laughs>